It was March 1st, 1974. A man by the name of Chuck Colson was indicted for conspiring to cover up the Watergate burglaries. This was Nixon's right-hand man. Some people called him his evil genius. And it was said that he was valuable to the president because he would get things done. Well, this hardball led him to hire a man that would spy on Nixon's opponents. And as we all know, this escapade led to Chuck Colson's prison sentencing on June 21st, 1974. He served his time pleading to he served his time pleading guilty to a Watergate related crime. Yet this judgment would not get the last word in his life. He was converted shortly before heading to prison, and Colson went on to tell the media before he was about to be locked up that he could serve God both in prison and out of prison. And the Lord saved him, and he spent the rest of his life promoting prison rehabilitation through the gospel of Jesus Christ and equipping the minds of generations to adopt a more biblical worldview. His life was characterized by hope and change, and everyone knew it. He lived by this resolution, I will live every day as it's my last, knowing by God's grace and the love of the Savior who waits for me beyond the grave. Well, his life proved that very thing until he went to be with the Lord in the spring of 2012. I think we can all agree that Colson's life was marked by hope and change, Judgment did not get the last word for this felon turned evangelical leader. No, hope did. In Christ's fellowship last week in Zephaniah, we saw in many ways judgment getting the last word, right? The first chapter was full of judgment. Zephaniah spends the majority of his time warning God's people about that dreadful day known as the day of the Lord, a day of trouble and distress, a day of darkness and gloom, a day that will bring devastation on Judah and ultimately on all of humanity. Zephaniah heralded that that day was inevitable, unavoidable, and near, and he was calling them to prepare for devastation. Nonetheless, there was a glimmer of hope beginning in chapter 2 for the humble, repentant, and righteous. The day wouldn't be turned back or delayed, yet some people could be sheltered or protected from this day. However, this was only a glimmer or shadow of hope since judgment was still coming. We all must be thinking, what will it be like for the people of God on that day? What should God's people expect when God comes in judgment? These questions will not go addressed as Zephaniah lands the plane in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. He lands the plane with this glorious picture of hope getting the last word for the people of God. Yes, the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of God's jealousy, yet he will restore a people for himself, a people that will not be put to shame, a people from all nations gathering around his throne, praising his name with gladness and joy. Why? Because God himself will be in their midst. Judgment does not get the last word in Zephaniah. No, hope does. And we're going to see this this morning as we work through the end of the book. We'll be in chapter 2, verse 4, to chapter 3, verse 20. 
And so I have two points coming from the text this morning, very simply, a people of judgment and a people of hope. A people of judgment and a people of hope. So if you're able, stand on your feet for the reading of God's word. For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon will become ruin. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe, inhabitants of the seacoast, nation of the Chetherites, the word of the Lord is against you. Canaan, land of the Philistines, I will destroy you until there is no one left. The seacoast will become pasture lands with caves for shepherds and pens for sheep. The coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They will find pasture there. They will lie down in the evening among the houses of Ashkelon, for the Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites, who have taunted my people and threatened their territory. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. Moab will be like Sodom, and the Ammonites will be like Gomorrah, a place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit, and a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nation will dispossess them. This is what they get for their pride, because they have taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. The Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. Then all the distant coasts and islands of the nations will bow and worship to him, each in its own place. You Cushites will also be slain by my sword. He will also stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as the desert. Herds will lie down in the middle of it, every kind of wild animal, both eagle owls and herons and roost in the capitals of its pillars. Their calls will sound from the window, but devastation will be on the threshold, for it will, explode, it will expose the cedar work. This is the jubilant city that lives in security, that says to herself, I exist and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a place for wild animals to lie down. Everyone who passes by her scoffs and shakes his fist. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. She has not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. The princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave her for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. The righteous Lord is in her. He does no wrong. He applies his justice morning by morning. He does not fail at dawn. Yet the one who does wrong knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their corner towers are destroyed. I have laid waste their streets with no one to pass through. Their cities lie devastated without a person, without an inhabitant. I said, you will certainly fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling place would not be cut off based on all that I have allocated to her. However, they became more corrupt in all their actions. Therefore, wait for me. 
This is the Lord's declaration. Until the day I rise up for plunder, for my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms in order to pour out my indignation on them, all my burning anger, for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples, so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people, will bring an offering to me. On that day, you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. I will gather those that have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute from you and a reproach to on her. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who are disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time, I will bring you. I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortune before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. You may be seated. All right, we come to our first point this morning, a people of judgment. As you without a doubt perceived from the reading of God's word, we're not out of the woods yet with this talk of judgment and destruction. Section 2, starting in 2.4 and ending in 3.8, expounds this destruction happening on the day of the Lord to both Gentiles and Jews. Zephaniah is saying, oh, you wonder how it'll happen? Let me tell you more about it. Zephaniah uses the four cardinal points of the compass, never eat shredded wheat, that's north, south, east, and west, y'all get, y'all with me? All right, so he used the four cardinal points of the compass as a literary device to demonstrate total and complete judgment covering the whole earth. He talks about Philistia to the west in verses 4 through 7, Moab and Ammon to the east in verses 8 through 11. Cush to the south in verse 12, and Assyria to the north in verses 13 through 15. And finally, after he covers the four corners of the earth, he finds himself back in Judah in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, declaring that they are no different from the other nations. They too deserve destruction. 
So here's where I'm going with this section, just to give you a little heads up, to kind of put a roadmap before you. I want to briefly discuss all five oracles of judgment from Zephaniah, the west, east, south, and north, and finally Judah, and give you warnings from these oracles to us as Christians so that we might not fall into these same sins. That's the very same thing Zephaniah is doing here when he points out these nations to Judah. Look at these people and the sins they have committed. Herein lies this great motivation to escape God's judgment through repentance. All right, so let's pick it up in Philistia to the west. Verse 4 says, For Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon will become a ruin. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe, inhabitants of the seacoast, nations of the Chetherites, the word of the Lord is against you. Canaan, land of the Philistines, I will destroy you until there is no one left. Zephaniah is envisioning judgment in the West to be absolutely devastating. Look again at the words he uses to describe the outcomes of these cities. Abandoned, become ruined, driven out at noon, uprooted. I want to say a quick word about driven out at noon because this phrasing could be unclear to us. I think the Lord in some ways is flexing upon Ashdod. He's saying, I don't have to come in in the early morning or the night to surprise a people who are asleep. No, I'm going to show my power and superiority when I drive you out in the middle of the day. Then in verse 5, Zephaniah moves to the destruction, not by cities like verse 4, but by position among the people of the world. He says, woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, Canaan, land of the Philistines. It seems like Deuteronomy 8, 19 through 20 should be ringing in the people of Judah's ears at this moment. Moses said, if you, ever forget that the Lord, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them, I testify against you today that you will perish. Like the nations the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. They had to be thinking, all right, this nation closest to us, closest to our borders is about to be destroyed. We likewise, if we do not repent, will suffer the same type of destruction. In Christ Fellowship, I think a great application for us this morning is to look at our borders. I'm not talking about gazing at North Carolina, Tennessee, or West Virginia. No, I'm talking about looking at churches around us. Look at the churches neighboring our borders. Many, I'm not saying all, but I am saying many act as a great warning to us that if you lose the gospel, you lose what it means to be a true church. You go from where two or three are gathered in my name, there Jesus is among you, to looking no different than the Met Gala or a football game at FedEx Field. These churches are like whitewashed tombs. Although they look so beautiful on the outside, oh, they are dead on the inside. And why is that? Because they have abandoned the gospel. The one thing that unites the people together and ushers Jesus in their midst. They have abandoned that. 
and Christ fellowship, we are not unsusceptible to this. No, we need to be on guard. We need to be on guard to never fall away from the gospel. All right, Zephaniah then moves to the east of Judah in verse 8 to address Moab and Ammon. Let's pick it up in verse 8. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites who have turned my people and threatened their territory. He goes down to say in verse 9b, Moab will be like Sodom and the Ammonites will be like Gomorrah. He finishes in verse 10 concluding the reason of destruction where he says, this is what they get for their pride because they have taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. Moab and Ammon were both relatives of Israel. We talked about this when we were in the book of Ruth, but they came from an incestuous relationship with Lot and his two daughters. And so the Lord says in Deuteronomy 2.9, he says that he has favor on these people. The Lord said to me when Moses writing, show no hostility towards Moab and do not provoke them to battle. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession. He goes down to say, why? Because their descendants, Lot is Abraham's nephew. So he's connected to Abraham in that way. But now, right here in Zephaniah, the Lord has turned against them. Why is that? Well, it's because of their pride. It's because of the way that they have acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. I want to focus on the phrase, the Lord of armies, because it really clues in what's going on, what their sin is before the Lord. You see, throughout the Old Testament and the New, we see that an insult against God's people is actually an insult against God himself. Why? Because God has attached his name to his people. This is precisely what David said to Goliath. I come in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel, that you have defiled for 40 days. Jesus says the same thing to Saul in Acts 9 when he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? An insult against God's people is an insult against God himself. And God will not deal kindly with this as he says, for the Lord will be terrifying to Ammon and Moab. Christ Fellowship, we again are not unsusceptible to this pride. I think this is a warning to be extremely careful not to speak ill about a church that Jesus has attached his name to. I do want to say this though. I, real, I realize that many of us have great hurts and pains and gaping wounds from past churches. Brothers and sisters, I want to start off by saying how sorry I am that you had to endure such hardships. It's hard enough to live in this sin-soaked world, yet to experience the adversity and suffering in churches seems to be infinitely harder to endure. But hear me, I promise you, as 2 Corinthians says, that everyone will face the judgment seat of Christ, each being repaid what he has done whether good or evil. Christ is the judge, and we are not. Let's leave these judgments up to him, lest we find ourselves in pride insulting the Lord of glory by speaking ill of his bride. All right, so next, he moves to the south, proclaiming judgment on the Cushites. It's one short sentence where he says in verse 12, you Cushites will also be slain by my sword. 
He doesn't elaborate on the people or the sin. He just declares that the Lord's sword is coming and he will strike a fatal blow. I wonder if this short warning made Israel recall where the Lord's hand was directed at them in 2 Samuel 24. David had sinned against the Lord and Israel was experiencing the consequences of it. You see, 2 Samuel 24, 16 says, Then the angel extended his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it. But the Lord relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand now. In summary, this oracle to Cush was a great warning that the Lord would not speak up next time to Judah. My sword will directly stay towards you. Lastly, he moves to Assyria in the north. Verse 13 says, He will also stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as the desert. Why? For what reason? Well, verse 15 answers it. This is the jubilant city that lives in security, that says to herself, I exist and there is no one else. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria at the time, and the, Assyria, and the Assyrians pretty much dominated the scene during Zephaniah's prophecy. It's like they were attaching divinity to themselves in saying, I exist and there is no one else. Now there is one who exists above and beyond everyone, but it is not Nineveh. It is not the Assyrians. No, it is God and God alone. This right here is the sin of self-sufficiency. I exist autonomously. I give an account to no one. Who else is there? A commentary helpfully said, but Assyria's scorn was deserved. Because this nation exalted himself to the highest heaven, it must be brought down to the lowest hell. Christ Fellowship, I realize that we will probably never attach divinity to our name, exalting ourselves above the highest heaven. Praise God for that. Yet that doesn't mean our actions cannot scream self-sufficiency. I think one way as a church we could start to subtly move in that direction is simply by our prayerlessness. Nothing screams self-sufficiency more than a church that fails to pray. Although they might not verbalize this, it's like a prayerless church is saying, I exist and there is no one else behind us. Christ Fellowship, I am so thankful that we are not a prayerless church. But let's be on guard so that we do not move in that direction. Let's continue to pray in our homes. Let's continue to pray in our small groups. And let's continue to pray during the Sunday morning service. I do want to point out that there's a group that meets before the service at 9.15 in the nursery every Sunday morning. I love this time because it screams our dependence on the Lord, pleading that he might meet with us, speak with us, and be glorified in our service. I would encourage you, if you're able, to to start attending that time of prayer. All right, so like chapter 1, Zephaniah pivots from the nations to Jerusalem. It's like Zephaniah was giving them hints about destruction in pronouncing judgment on the nations. Nevertheless, he comes right through the door to pronounce destruction on the people of Judah. And so we're going to briefly look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, since we spent most of our time in the city of Jerusalem last week. Look with me at verse 2. 
She has not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. This is a devastating critique of God's people. You haven't obeyed. The Lord came in graciousness when calling you to return, yet you didn't accept discipline. You have not trusted in the Lord, and your life gives evidence of that. I mean, really a devastating critique to God's people. Look with me at verse 7. I said, you will certainly fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling place would not be cut off based on all that I have allocated to her. However, they became more corrupt in all their actions. You see, in verse 7, Judah is in direct contrast with the Lord in verse 5. Let's back up a couple verses because I want us to see this. This is, you know, night and day right here. In verse 5, it says, The righteous Lord is in her. He does no wrong. He applies justice morning by morning. He does not fail. It's like Zephaniah is perceiving that someone might be thinking, Well, where was God in the midst of this? Did he change? Is there any failure on his part? Zephaniah proclaims that the Lord is righteous in character and in action. And, when he, and, and he was in their midst the entire time, yet they failed to trust in the Lord and draw near. Was there any failure on God's part? Absolutely not. This, this section just cries out with the loudest voice. The problem was with Judah's heart. They needed a new heart and a new spirit inside of them. The heart of stone needed to be removed and replaced. If you are a professing non-Christian, I just want to first off say welcome. We are so thankful that you chose this morning to come to Christ Fellowship. We praise God you're here. And just thinking about you with this text, I wonder if you've ever said to yourself or even out loud, you know, I might believe the stuff you guys preach if I saw Jesus with my very eyes or if I witnessed the miracles that I see in the Bible. If you've ever said or thought these things, I want to say that you're not alone. I've heard this numerous amounts of time. Nevertheless, the Bible is full of passages like this and in John like this in Zephaniah and in John 6 that demonstrate unless the Lord gives us a new heart, even if the Father or Jesus is in our midst, we will not believe in him. You see, John 6, Jesus has done quite a lot of miracles like feeding the 5,000. Yet verse 66 clearly points or clearly proves my point when John says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. These men and women were witnesses of God the Son incarnate, witnesses of his teaching, witnesses of his miracle. They saw it with their very own eyes. But what does the text say? The text says they walked away. The text says that they turned back from following Jesus. Why is that? we got to think, why would they do that? Well, I think verse 44 in John 6 gives us the answer. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unless God gives us a new heart and draws us to himself, we will be blind, even if the Lord is in our very midst. An unbeliever, you might be thinking, how do I know if the Lord is drawing me? How do I know if the Lord is giving me a new heart? 
Well, it's a very mysterious thing that happens, but it goes from preaching of the gospel. And you may have never heard the gospel, but it's the gospel that saves us. It's God who works through the gospel to give us this new heart. And the gospel is that we are sinners before a holy and righteous God, that we deserve judgment, but God in his mercy made a way that sinners could be in right standing with him through Jesus who lived the life that we could not live, and Jesus went to, the da- went to the cross and died. And he rose on the third day, and all who look on the Son, all who look on him in repentance and faith, will have life in his name. I would encourage you to talk to any of our members after the service about the gospel. They would love to share it with you. They would love to talk more about it with you. All right, so back to Zephaniah. Zephaniah ends this section in verse 8 that says, Therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration until the day I rise up for plunder. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms in order to pour out my indignation on them. All my burning anger for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. You see, it kind of seems similar to verse 18 of chapter 2. Zephaniah moves to this, you know, local judgment of Jerusalem to more of this worldwide judgment from, for all nations. Um, he speaks about everyone will be judged, including Jerusalem. And that's Jesus' second coming. That's where he moves to beyond 586 B.C. to Jesus will come and every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And everyone that are not in Christ will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy. But I want to say this. And church, I pray that you see the glories in Zephaniah. Because judgment, like Chuck Colson's story, will not be the last word for the people of God. You see, Zephaniah in section 3 offers these glorious promises of hope for the people of God on this day of the Lord. And he's saying, it's not going to take us by surprise, really, like verses 1 through 3 did in chapter 2. You see, Zephaniah throughout chapter 2 has given us these small glimmers of hope of God's people. I want us to just glance back at chapter 2 right quick and see these glimmers of hope that's leading into this glorious announcement in chapter 3. You see, verse 7 in chapter 2 says, The coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They will find pasture there. They will lie down in the evening among the houses of Ashkelon. For the Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortune. Verse 9b says, The remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nation will dispossess them. And then verse 11, this is so glorious right here. What a glimmer of hope. Then all the distant coast and islands of the nations will bow and worship to him each in his own place. These are only small shadows sprinkled throughout Zephaniah's judgment. Yet we come to the final section of the book where we see a clear and glorious picture of hope getting the last word for the people of God. And that's where we come to our final point this morning, a people of hope. Zephaniah 
seems to be anticipating this scattering of God's people through judgment. Yet here in this section, he depicts this new type of community, a new people who will look very different than the old, a restored community, a people saved through judgment. Let's pick it up in verse 9. For I will then restore pure speech to the people so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose from beyond the rivers of Cush. My supplicants, my dispersed people will bring an offering to me. You might be wondering now, how will this happen? How will worldwide judgment coincide with this far-reaching salvation? You see, when the Lord says through Zephaniah, for I will then, I'm sure we're probably trying to anticipate the how and when of this day. But I want to say, I really don't think that's Zephaniah's goal here. Zephaniah really doesn't work out the details. No, he saw destruction and he saw salvation and he was faithful to herald both. Although we might not know every single detail, I do think we can say three things. Number one, God's promise will happen. It's a sure bet. We as Baptists don't bet, but it's a sure bet. Number two, it's just a Baptist joke. Number two, secondly, these glorious promises are for God's people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we have become his people, his sons and daughters, and this promise rings true for the people of God today. And lastly, I want to say this again. Judgment will not get the last word. Hope does. Prepare yourselves, in my opinion, for one of the greatest sections in all of the Bible. I want to glance first just to kind of highlight some things at the first person pronouns in this portion. Look with me at verse 9. I will then restore. Maybe you circle that I. Verse 12, I will leave a meek and humble people. There that I is again. Verse 18, I will deal with those who oppress you. I will save the lame and the outcast. Verse 20, I will bring you back. I will give you fame and praise. It's God himself who is restoring his people. And this work is entirely dependent on God. On, on God. I know that I won't adequately explain the glories of this passage, but I do want us to see our glorious and merciful and compassionate and loving God on full display here. Yes, we've seen God's judgment time after time, but behold how much he truly cares, the great links that he goes for his people. He loves us so much, and we can clearly see that in this section. Okay, so back to verse 9. This is so good. God starts off by prophesying about restoring pure speech to the peoples. You see, right here is a reversal of Babel. Remember, Babel tried to establish and organize their lives apart from the Lord. Yet here we see this reversal of Genesis 11, where we have all nations calling on the name of the Lord and serving him with a single purpose. Verses 9 and 10 are prophesying about God's restoration to the nations. I mean, let's just think about this for a second, all right? Let's just sit here, kind of wade in this. For the past two chapters, Zephaniah has been prophesying about the depravity of man, the hardness of man's heart. Yet here, God does what only he can do. 
he turns the nations to himself. He brings a people to call on his name and serve him with a single purpose. A people who profess with their mouths and profess with their lives that they are one of his children. And so where do we see this really happening? Well, I think we first see this at Pentecost, where Peter picks up Joel's prophecy that's very similar to Zephaniah's, when he says, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, at Pentecost, we see a people organizing themselves not apart from the Lord, but what? Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Their lives are now organized around the Lord and his people. What a glorious reversal. Something only God can do. All right, next, starting in verse 11 to the end, we see God start, or we see Zephaniah, God through Zephaniah, talk about the restoration towards Jerusalem. Yet, I do want to say this. What I personally believe that these promises are to us Gentiles through the gospel. God has made a new people. He has broken down the walls of hostility. Gentiles are fellow heirs, co-heirs with Christ along the believing Jews. And he joins together. I want us to look at verse 10 because I think this verse makes my point. He joins together my supplicants, which is all nations, and my dispersed people. Those are the Jews, where they will together bring an offering to God. It's like Zephaniah is envisioning the binding of the nations with Israel, serving alongside of one another. And we find that in the church today. Praise be to God for that. All right, let's look at verse 11. On that day, you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. I heard a pastor once say that Satan is a master historian. Satan is determined to cause us to flee from God like Adam and Eve in the garden. To get us to believe the lie that we are no good. That we deserve darkness. That we deserve to live away from the presence of the Lord. Well, Paul in Romans 9 quotes from Isaiah when he says, Look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over. And the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Who is this rock? Well, this rock is no other than Christ himself. And the text says that all who believe on him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, yes, Satan is a master historian, but we must preach to ourselves that we are not defined by our shame. Shame can never have the last word in our lives. There's no need to hide because the greater Adam has accomplished our redemption. And listen to me, no one can separate us from the love of Christ. Yes, shame will rise up in our lives, yet let it not have the last word. God promises that he will not put us to shame. Hiding is no longer necessary. All right, so let's pick it up in verse 14, where we see Zephaniah prophesying about our joyful salvation. I mean, this is so good right here. He says, sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad. Celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You no longer need to fear harm. 
one major theme that you see throughout Zephaniah and really throughout the whole Bible is salvation through judgment. You see, we've simultaneously seen in this book that God is just, right? And he will not clear the guilty. But we've also seen a commitment to his people. Right there, God is just, and a commitment to his people demands salvation through judgment. And let us not forget the context. Judgment is coming for the people of God. Yet Zephaniah calls these people to rejoice now, shout now, sing for joy now. This isn't a future, do this when this happens. He's saying, do this now. Why are they to rejoice? Because judgment will not get the last word. No, it's hope. And I want to say the Bible's definition of hope is radically different than the world's definition. You see, the world uses hope in the sense of wishful thinking, like, I hope it doesn't rain, or I hope the U.S. wins the Ryder Cup this afternoon. But I do hope that. But the Bible speaks of hope categorically different. Hope is a rock-solid confidence in God's promises. Why is that? Because what God has said will happen. These people could sing for joy and celebrate because their hope was in God, that he would deliver them from their own selves, their own sins, and their enemies. That judgment would occur, but it would not be to their demise. Salvation would spring forth through judgment. Judgment on their sins and judgment on their enemies. And we got to ask the question, how did this happen? What happened in the new covenant? The new covenant is a fulfillment of this prophecy. When he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, the only way that salvation can take place is through salvation through judgment. There is no other way. And Jesus was judged on the cross, removing our punishment and turning back our enemy. And that enemy was no other than God himself. And Jesus accomplished our salvation. And we get to see in verse 17 this beautiful picture of how God sees us now. This might be one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible. Many people say it's like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Look at it with me. Zephaniah is saying that judgment does not get the last word. No, hope does. Verse 17 the Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. I'm going to read that one more time. Let us just sit in it. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. The Lord is a warrior among his people, a warrior who saves. His pursuit is not judgment. No, it's salvation. And remember the one who is pursuing. It is the Lord of the universe going before his people to accomplish what they need the most. And that is salvation. Secondly, we think a lot about rejoicing in the Lord. But have we ever contemplated that the Lord rejoices over us? This is what the text says. The Lord rejoices over his people. And I want to say, simply put, that we rejoice over what we find value in. 
And brothers and sisters, never forget that the Lord found so much value in us that he shed his own blood for his people. He rejoices over us with gladness. Next, Zephaniah says that he will be quiet in his love. This is certainly probably the hardest verse to translate and contemplate. I think it's best translated, he will be quiet in his love over us. A commentary said this, I thought this was helpful. To consider the almighty God sinking in contemplations of love over a once wretched human being, this can hardly be absorbed in the human mind. I cannot adequately explain God's affection for his children, but I am reminded that Jesus was silent on the cross so that God could be quiet in his love over us. That is such amazing love. All right, lastly, we see, and we've seen commands in this section to sing for joy, yet right here we see a picture of us not singing to God, but God singing over us. It's like, how can we even fathom his voice over his children and even the songs that he sings? I can't explain it, but I do know the text says it, and that means it's true, that God delights in his people and he sings over us. I just have one question for you after this section. Christian, do you truly believe this? Do you believe that God absorbs himself in love towards you? Look with me at verse 17 one more time. God is among you, rejoicing over you, quiet over you, delighting in you with singing. Zephaniah is saying we are the objects of his affections, and I want to ask you, Christian, do you believe this? Because if you do believe it, it should absolutely change the way that we live. We don't have to fear judgment. We're not defined by our shame. God is not distant from us. We should not fear harm, and we should never say that we are too guilty. Do you believe God's promises to his people? If you do, this should absolutely change the way that we live. It must change the way we live. It must cause us to rejoice and celebrate and sing for joy and cry out, Lord, please do not tarry. Please come because we're ready for that day when our faith will be turned to sight. And that's how Zephaniah really ends the lands the plane. It's different from how he started it. It's not worldwide destruction. No, he gives this picture of a restored people gathering around him. And this ultimately points forward to the new heavens and the new earth. And I want to land the plane with the reading of Revelation 21 because this is what Zephaniah is prophesying about. John said, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with his humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The end of Zephaniah, like the end of Revelation, demonstrates that God's judgment does not get the last word. No, hope does. Let's pray.